don't remember where I learned it, um, or really when I began to integrate this practice into my life. I think it was pretty early on, but at one point, um, the pinky promise emerged as the highest form of schoolyard arrangements. And if you have ever made a pinky promise, you know that it's a big deal. And the pinky promise goes something like this. There is an agreement, a plan, perhaps even a secret that is being told. And so you and the other party with whom the pinky promise may or may not come that start out in this conversation. The plan is made, a plan is hatched, and then the question comes, well, well, will you do this? And then following that, generally there's an affirmation, yes, I will do said thing or I will keep said promise. And then there's this space between that affirmation and the next moment. And this space is a moment for you to be sure that you will do the thing that you have said you will do. And the question that assures that is this, but do you pinky promise? And that moment, and this might sound silly, and this is me trying to be dramatic, I guess, but that moment is like, oh, do I actually pinky promise? And if you enter into this pinky promise, now there is no doubt that you will bring to bear the thing that you have agreed upon, or you will keep that secret. Um, just by a show of hands, how many have made a pinky promise? Um, by a show of hands, how many have broken a pinky promise? Every hand should be, yeah, there we are. So uh, Steve Roud, in his work, The Lore of the Playground, he provides some backstory to the Pinky Promise. The Pinky Promise, according to Steve, uh, started in the 17th century in Japan. And they would enact the Pinky Promise with this word, uh, yubikuri. And this literally translated means finger cut off. So now, for all of us who've broken a pinky promise, if we were in 17th century Japan, we'd see a lot less of these bad boys floating around. Um, not that your pinky floats around. You get what I'm saying. See, in other words, the pinky promise, it puts one's pinky on the line, and failure to follow through on your promise is like the risk of losing a phalange. Uh, but because we don't live in the 17th century, we don't live in 17th century Japan, uh, pinky chopping isn't really a viable option. Um, not to mention that uh, the way of Jesus is going to teach us and invite us into nonviolent enemy love. We're going to do that the next two weeks, so there's that. Uh, suffice it to say, this is not an option for a flourishing community in the name of Jesus to go around chopping one another's pinkies off if we break our promise. This is my point. Even at a young age, it becomes apparent that the spoken word, whether it is a plan or it is a promise, that the spoken word hangs on the embodied action. If there is no action in keeping with the words spoken, the words are empty. Like we learn this at a young age, that we need something more than the words we say. We actually need our life behind this. And in the vacancy of our promises, Jesus has some wisdom to offer us it today. And we heard it in the teaching text there at the very end. All you need to say is simply yes or no. That line comes from this section in a wider flow of thought in the Sermon on the Mount called the Antitheses. This is um, what Bible nerds affectionately are calling this section. It's six micro-teachings on Jesus filling out this larger statement that he just made a moment prior, which is, I have not come to do away with or abolish the law, but I've actually come to set it into its full form, to fulfill it. And then these six little teachings on murder and actually rooting out covetousness and adultery and lust of the heart and divorce and 
oaths. Jesus is filling out this reality because he wants us to get to the heart of the law. Remember, he has not come to do away with it. He's come to bring it to its completion. He doesn't want to simply just see murder not like murder rates to go down. He wants to exercise contempt from the human heart because contempt is this thing where we make an object of another person. Have you ever noticed um, that midterms are upon us and so the lawn signs are increasing in number, uh, at least on my street? And if you live in an apartment, maybe it's just plastered in a window. Uh, but contempt is where we, are, we push someone away relationally. And as they're further away relationally, they become an object. And it's easier to diminish an object than it is a person. This is just a case in point. When you go to a family meal and there's a person who thinks different politically and you're having a conversation, how does that go compared to your back and forth on the interwebs? Like the comments that you'll make on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, are far different than the comments you make in real life. Are we getting this? Jesus is here to actually exercise that thing, contempt from the human heart. But he doesn't just want to stop there. He actually wants to root out anything that defaces humanity who bear God's image. This is the movement of our text today as well. And to help us get at this, how Jesus is after our hearts, uh, I just want to take three simple on-ramps. Oaths, the name, and spiritual warfare. Oaths, the name, and spiritual warfare. So to start, uh, oaths. Oaths are a bit tricky. Um, and maybe you came to this part in the Sermon on the Mount and you were like, finally. Yes, I like never make an oath. I'm going to crush it on oaths. Oaths are a bit tricky. Uh, to be clear, when Jesus just said what Jesus said, he has just lambasted the speech patterns of the people who are on the mount. Remember the scene. We get this in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus um, sees the crowds. He goes up on there. But who are the crowds? The crowds are full of people who are lame and sick and riddled with diseases, who are poor and destitute, people who are on the margins. And these people, Jesus then lambasts their speech patterns. He calls them to abandon this practice of oath-taking and making. And the curious thing, this is why oaths are tricky, is that oaths are actually um, called upon in the Old Testament. People make oaths on the regular. God himself makes oaths. Now, Jesus has just said to those present, to his disciples, don't take or make an oath at all. So... Um, Oaths are a bit tricky. Uh, let's get some facts on the ground. What is an oath? This is, I'll, I'll give us a framework. An oath is a solemn pact to keep one's word. An oath is a solemn pact, be it uh, personal, political, or religious, to keep one's word. And solemnity has this idea of reverence. So it's this solemn pact. And in Jesus' day, you would have a, a handful of agreements. You might think about a, like a covenant. This would be something made before God. The distinction with an oath is that an oath is where you place God's name on top of your words, or you take an aspect of God and you place it on top of your words to verify that thing as legit. We, we do this type of thing. We uh, have this type of equivalent. We, we may say, I swear to God. Or um, maybe a bit less intense and more common is literally. I literally say literally all the time. Literally, it's just, it's there. And what we mean to say is figuratively, 
Um, that's just a reproof for myself. So figuratively, we say these things, but th this is what we're doing. We're trying to add a weightiness to our words. And so when we call upon God's name or God's character, we are, we're amping up those words, saying you can actually trust this. The funny thing is, is when we do that, it makes those words seem um, less reliable. Just throwing that out there. Because much like the, that ordinary expression, I swear to God, when we bring that forward, it actually raises a question like, okay, um, do, but what does that even mean? Well, Jesus is going to help us unpack this. So go, go with me back. Uh, either flip or tap your way over to verse 33. It's going to be up here as well. Uh, see, Jesus is, is calling his followers to do away with oaths altogether, to, to get at our hearts, to essentially get at this ancient equivalent of the pinky promise. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. He's referring back to this network of commands in the Old Testament, what we would know as the Torah. So you've heard it was said, do not break an oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, this is this formula, Jesus, a good rabbi, interpreting and saying, here is now the word coming to you. This is authoritative. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool. Jesus is going to go on, but let's just pause right here. Um, notice that when Jesus commands his disciples... He actually commands them to do away with oaths altogether. And how do you do that? It's, it's quite intuitive. Um, you, you just don't make one. There's like, so no pinky promises ever again. And for some of us, if, we're, um, if you identify with the Enneagram as a helpful tool and you're like, maybe you're like, oh, I'm a one and right and wrong is clear. It's black or white. You're like, okay, from now on, I will no longer ever take an oath. And if I don't, the inner critic will shame me for the rest of the week. Um, until I come back and do confession and assurance, and then I'll live in grace for that, like, afternoon. But then, black and white. So, no, is, is that what Jesus is doing here? I think there's probably some nuance, and he'll help us get at this. Uh, he's actually getting at our empty speech. He says, it's like, do you not remember? You think you're calling upon God's care, or like, you're, you're trying to be careful, so you're calling upon God's character to, to bolster your words, but don't you remember what the prophet in Isaiah 66 said? The sovereign Lord says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. These things belong to God. Jesus goes on, do not swear by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. It's like, okay, yes, the, the imprint of human craftsmanship is in that space. It is a holy city, but do you not remember the song that you sing, Psalm 48? Great is Yahweh and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in his loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. And then hear this, God is in her citadels, her holy places. He has shown himself to be her fortress. You call on Jerusalem to bolster your words, but that is God as well. And um, Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 36, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair black or white or white or black. And I know Jesus had no idea about a touch of gray for, like, from just for men because it wasn't on the market yet. That's a bad pastoral joke. We'll make it again another time. But he, knew, he doesn't know about these things, about modifying your appearance with like coloring of your hair, but he knows about creation. And so he's going to call back the people to see, you belong to God. So all, and this is pretty straightforward, all of your reasoning, all of your speech, all of your so-called oaths are done before God. 
This is the, the push of Jesus' words. This is why I said he lambasted their speech patterns. If you want to use lambasted this week in like an office memo, just, oh, it's powerful. Go for it. Um, see, in other words, Jesus is saying, try as you might, like, to appropriate God's space to fill your words. They remain empty. So wh- why not just not manipulate at all? Why not just not spin at all? Just do not make an oath. Your words simply need you. Your words don't need the verification of, of God's space or some space crafted for God to dwell. Your words just need you to follow through them. And what's curious is um, this is not like a distinct teaching to Jesus. There's other thinkers of the day. There's a near contemporary, a philosopher, Philo, who made this statement about his frustration with oaths. So Philo in the Decalogue says this, For an oath is an appeal to God as a witness on matters in dispute. And to call him as a witness to a lie is the height of profanity. So let me just unpack this a little bit. If I, I may understand Philo incorrectly, um, and if you know Philo, like, coach me, pastor me afterward. Um, but I think this is what Philo is getting at, is in the oaths that are being made are tantamount to a lie. Like, they actually hold no weight because the words are empty, and if you call God to verify your empty words, in other words, a lie, it is profane. It takes a name, the name of God that is holy, And it asks that holy name, the fullness of God, to rest on an empty thing. So Jesus, in the place of an oath, is calling his disciples to embody honesty. It's easier to teach about this than it is to live it. And we actually get a picture of what this looks like when Jesus puts his ethic into practice. Later in the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus is before, I guess, the equivalent of like the Jewish Supreme Court. This is Matthew 26, and Jesus has just been in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the the, the Garden of the Olive Press, where Jesus, you know, this is like dripping, um, sweating drops of blood, intent, like having an anxiety attack. And from there, then one of his disciples, like, for a chunk of change, gives Jesus over into the hands of the authorities. And now Jesus has been brought forward, and he's, he's sitting there, and this exchange is taking place. And the high, this is what we see in Matthew 26, 62. The high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer these are the accusations that have been charged to Jesus in this kangaroo court? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And Jesus is silent. Like, he doesn't need to fill that word like, you know, anxious preachers. He just remains. He holds that space. And then we see this. But the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. So the most dramatic, the most emphatic language that the high priest can muster, he puts it forward. And check out Jesus' response, verse 64. You have said so. You see, for Jesus to have engaged in that moment and given the proper quote-unquote response, he would have had to uh, read, in essence, the oath back to the high priest and then to call upon God's name to validate his own words in a different direction. But what does he do? He, He instead says, you have said so, but I say to you, 
There's that little formula. He, he inverts. He moves in a different direction. You have said so. He affirms their words but goes in a different direction. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. If you know the story, the high priest rends his garments, which if you've not, uh, I don't know, done any garment rending as of late, he rips them open. Why would you do that? Why would you have such a, like, an intense demonstration of emotion? Because Jesus has just called on this, this scene from the prophet Zan- Daniel. And this is, this is the one on whom God, like, his, his presence and power and grace rests. That the Son of Man will be lifted up, vindicated, and seated in the heavens with the living God to reign and rule. Jesus has just called himself in the framework of the Jewish people, God. He, he's placed himself on equal. This is why Jesus is killed. Jesus in this moment shows us what it looks like to embody honesty. Um, this is perhaps what Jesus is looking for is that our words would actually map on, or our life would map onto our words. This is what Jesus fully does. See, Jesus refuses the oath And he makes an even bolder statement that God would raise him up to rule with him. And you know, what this brings me to is the reality is I have no idea what to do with oaths in 2022. (laughs) I don't think we make very many oaths, but we sure do have a lot of words. I won't speak for you. I know some of you are more introverted and you reserve your word count for the day. I have all the words all the time. Uh, And so the irony of standing up here and talking about like, the emptiness of our words is not lost on me. See, I'm not sure what to do with oaths in 2022 for a Christian. And there's some uh, traditions, if you come from a more Anabaptist tradition, or maybe you've seen somebody in a buggy and a horse, they would say no oaths, just don't do that. But what do you do with their cell service? Like if they have a cell phone or any type of agreement, is that an oath? So we could sit and parse out the finer details of what does it mean to keep an oath or not keep an oath. And I think we would all um, say, I don't want to follow that Jesus. Or just me. I don't want to follow like the, the, the nitpicking aspect of every little thing. What does that mean? No, I, instead I want to see Jesus moving toward my heart and receive his invitation to ruthlessly embody honesty. But what that means is I'm going to have to carry his name in a different way. I'm going to have to, like my words will actually have to be something I'm, I'm going to be willing to live into. And that brings us to the name. See, when Jesus begins speaking about oaths, I... I would imagine that the words of Deuteronomy 6.13 would come to mind. This is right after the Shema. The Shema is like this holy prayer that the people of Israel would pray that reminds them of the oneness of God. And then these words would follow shortly thereafter. Fear Yahweh your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Have you ever thought about what those three little words mean on the end? In his name. Remember, oaths are tricky. See, in, in like a, a cocktail of reverence and religiosity, the people of Israel, they slowly began to distance themselves from the name of God for fear of taking the name in vain. They, this is what uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters would call building a fence. Because lest they actually cross a boundary, they just will make another one out here. So we won't cross this one, so we'll never break the law. And so they would say, well, we don't want to take the Lord's name in vain, so we're just going to have all of these other ways that we, um, we carry God's name. 
They didn't want to directly invoke God's name, and so what they did is they had all these substitutionary words that would protect them from doing this. These are called the, the kinuyim. Give that a try. Kinuyim. Beautiful. These kinuyim are words like Adonai, which means Lord, or the Almighty, or hosts, or he who is merciful and gracious, and so on and so forth. And without getting too far down into the weeds, which you know I would love to do, uh, by the time that this verse comes on the scene, Deuteronomy 6.13, the people of Israel are already free. The people of Israel encounter their freedom in the Exodus account. They have been delivered from their life and enslavement in Egypt. They have been brought through the chaos waters of the Red Sea. They are already free. They're as, most, they're as free as they're going to be. And then what God gives them is the gift of expectations. If you remember the story, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. They're brought through, and the scriptures describe it, with the strong right arm of God. He brings them through. The, the Spirit of God blows through the waters, and they go through on dry ground, and then they go into the wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the wisdom of God, and there it is. The people of Israel don't have to wonder what it looks like to live with their God. And this is where we encounter this famous line in Exodus 27, do not take the Lord your God's name in vain. What the heck does that mean? I've um, been a Christian since college. And still to this day, when I hear about taking the Lord's name in vain, I think about like dropping something on my foot and, and accidentally like dropping a GD. Am I the only one in this room? Or like cussing in general? Okay, here we go. So th this, is, this is not the thing. There is no aspect of speech. Although our speech can profane God, there's no aspect of speech in this passage. See, the word that's there for take is this Hebrew word nasah. Give this one a try, nasah. NASA. Um, it's probably one of the easiest Hebrew words to memorize because it, it looks like NASA, and it really means to like to lift up or take up. So just be, just think of NASA, and you're like, ah, oh, to lift up. This is the word to take, to lift up, to carry. In other words, the command in Exodus 27 is is telling the people of Israel, do not misrepresent Yahweh. Carry His name with integrity. It's about carrying God's name with, like, no ill effect. This is what it is to take the Lord's name in vain. When, you're, when your life misrepresents, when you are embodying dishonesty, that is taking the Lord's name in vain. It is in all of life, a holistic reality. And the whole point is that these people, the covenant people of God, were, like, the ones through whom God desired to bless all of the nations. They were to be this conduit of grace for God to the ends of the earth and all of creation. God placed his name on them to carry his name, to be the ones through whom their neighbors and creation itself felt the goodness of Yahweh. To carry God's name is about embodying honesty. And when Jesus comes to these people, and he's sitting on a mountainside, they are no longer in relationship to the name. They've actually distanced themselves from the name. They've, they've said the name is reserved for solemn spaces. We'll, 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 the, the name will go there. Actually, we don't even want the, the name on our lips lest we take it in vain. 
And so that cocktail of religiosity and reverence has come to bear on the people. And now they're calling on like aspects of the kinuyim. They're calling on aspects of God's character to hold up their words. And Jesus wants them to have full words, not empty words. He's saying, um, God's name is, was meant to rest on you. The solemn space is not out there. The solemn space is right here. You are the place where God's name is meant to rest, and you are meant to carry it. Do you not know whose image you're made in? Do you not know the beauty and the integrity that is, that is here within the marrow of your bones? And God wants to see that re restored and released. This is why Jesus' language can sound so intense, and he says, don't take an oath at all. Simply embody honesty. To say it a different way, Jesus is like talking about identity. Just be who you already are. What if like the gospel that came to us was something like, um, be who you already are or live more fully into who you already are? Let me just ask a quick question. If you were to live more fully into who you already are, would that require some like adjustments in your life? If you think about it for a moment, yes. Because th there's an assumption baked in that question that the life I'm living is not actually aligned with who I truly am. So then do I arrive at who I am through like, I don't know, mindfulness practices and receiving some, the inner voice of me? Or, or perhaps is there a space? This is, this is the distinctive of the Christian story is that we actually have the gift of a God who will speak over us. This is who you are, not to condemn us, not to demean us, not to push us to the sides, but to say, you, male, female, you bear the image of God. You, my creation, humanity, you are the ones through whom I want to see the whole of creation blessed. What if God is actually inviting us to be who we already are in Christ? just food for thought. That brings us to spiritual warfare. See, to close, Jesus has just brought us to the place of like living into the truth of your identity. And let me remind you, verse 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. It would have been really great if Matthew left that out because it would make this teaching way less complicated, but here we go. Uh, maybe spiritual warfare feels a bit clickbaity or ridiculous in a teaching on oaths, but if Jesus is calling his disciples, his apprentices, if you will, you and me, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if Jesus is calling his disciples to embody honesty, to live out of our identity as those who are already free, and then to live into our identity as those set free from our enslavement, namely sin, then why is it so hard? Like, why is it so hard to allow our yes to be yes and our no to be no? That question is rhetorical. I'm just going to, like, give my response. Part of it might just be our personality, like our temperament. Like, we are, the, like, part of it might just be our family of origin. Like, what we saw modeled for us is, like, there's this work, this book. It's a short little book. It's by a philosophy of more of a moral philosopher, and it's called On BS. You can fill out what BS is. Um, and in this little book, there's a story of a dad and a son. And the dad is giving coaching to the son. And he essentially says, well, you don't want to lie. But you can, like, you can tell a good story if you need to vamp. 
is the official word. Or we might call it spin. So let's say somebody asks you a question and you're, I don't know, in, a, in like on a Zoom meeting. Anybody still doing Zoom meetings? Okay, periodically. Um, let's say you're on a Zoom meeting or maybe you're just like in the office and someone asks you a question that you think you ought to know and all of a sudden there are words coming out of your mouth but you don't actually know what the heck you're talking about. Yeah, this is like half my life. I'm just, um, someone will ask me a theological question because I want to be perceived as one who is um, both personable and uh, yet knowledgeable and yet carelessly winsome. Like all of a sudden, I'm just like saying a bunch of BS. Encouragement for, uh, so some of that is personality. Some of that is family of origin. And some of that, according to Jesus, is when we are defining good and bad on our own terms, which he's going to call from the evil one. Let me get at this a little bit further. See, when I talk about the evil one, I'm not talking about like a little red guy uh, with uh, like horns and a pointy tail and a pitchfork, nor am I talking about like some goat monster on the cover of like a death metal album cover. You know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about that, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the, what I'm talking about is who Jesus is talking about, the evil one. And you're like, okay, go on. I will. John chapter 8, Jesus gives one of his most in-depth teachings on the evil one. And what we see there is that Jesus, after this sparring match with the religious leaders of the day, has these tough words to say in John chapter 8, verse 42. This is what we hear. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Just pause right there. Um, there are those who are starting to believe that Jesus is the one sent by God. And in response... There's this little back and forth between the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and Jesus. And then the Pharisees essentially call Jesus a bastard. And he says, our father is Abraham. No, our, our God is our true father. Then Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. And here it is. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. We could spend probably a good year right there, uh, but two things this morning as we kind of come to a close. First, notice that when Jesus is speaking about the evil one, there is not a proper name. Uh, there is only an article, either direct or indirect, the, the the or an A, or definite and indefinite, excuse me, for you grammar Nazis. Um, wow, sorry, the Nazi grammar Nazi, that was unkind. That, maybe that was from the evil one. Um, the accuser, the tempter, the Satan, the evil one, the father of lies. Whether the Satan is like, some scholars think, like the equivalent of he who must not be named. Or it's just that the Satan is not worthy of a name. Either way, we don't know. But what is clear is that Jesus recognizes the very real imprint and impact of the Satan. 
Elsewhere, Jesus will call the Satan the ruler of this world, and that, that title, the ruler of this world, is pretty significant. In the Greek, the language the New Testament was originally written in, that word is archon. Archon is like this high, one of the highest ranking officials. So you know this moment where Jesus goes and is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, and the, the Satan comes to put Jesus to the test. There is this intense moment where the Satan offers all of the kingdoms. Is that a legitimate or illegitimate offer? Well, I, according to Jesus, or at least by interpretation of Jesus, it, it, that's a legit offer. Like he actually has that domain, and what Jesus is here drawing our attention to is that our capacity to embody honesty is real, but what we often do is we live into emptiness. We actually give words out into the world. We speak words into the atmosphere that we have no intent of filling with our lives. And that type of empty speech, he is tying back to opposition to the kingdom of God. How, how are we doing with spiritual warfare here? Maybe this doesn't map onto your theology of spiritual warfare because you're thinking about like exorcisms and you're thinking about demonization. And I do think those are real aspects of it, but perhaps the place of spiritual warfare, the contested space that Jesus is getting after is the distinction between truth and lies. Of words full of life, truth, and words empty of life, lies. And I think this is why Jesus' words have hit so hard for me because even like right before Jesus goes in on the Pharisees, he says this in verses 31 and 32, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you hold my teaching, if you carry my name, if you embody this life that I'm offering you, there is freedom to be had there. There is fullness to be had there. The emptiness of you trying to bolster up your words or manipulate others by putting my name or character or God's character on this, that is emptiness that gives way, gives way to death. And it stands in the lineage of the father of, of lies. What if the, the boldest act of the Christian life in this season was to actually just do the stuff we said we would do? Uh, the irony of this teaching is um, in our community, I get to like run through this with a, a couple of folks on Tuesdays. And on that day, um, we're walking through it. I had one example of how this went quite poorly for me. And by the next day, I had two so here's the first. Uh, a couple of weeks back, we had a board meeting, and those happen generally on Thursdays in the evening, and um, our boys, uh, two small humans, um, and they go to bed right around dinner. We, we kind of uh, go with the senior citizen schedule, so we're eating dinner like 5.30, and then, you know, kind of bedtime, 6.37. So um, board meeting starts at 6.30. You do the math. I'm not going to be there for it. And that day, I said, you know what? We have this board meeting in the evening. I'll, I'll come up. I'll come up early. There was no, like, agreed-upon agenda for the day or, like, a text message confirming I would come up. But um, lunchtime happens. I eat and then go back downstairs. And then lunchtime is over. Nap time happens. I'm not there. Nap time is complete. I'm not there. Snack time happens. I'm not there. Um, Four o'clock happens. I'm not there. 4.30, I roll upstairs. And I can like see the visible annoyance on Jessica. <laughs> and she says, and she doesn't just leave it there. She goes, I'm annoyed with you. Which I was grateful for that. Um, 
So this is the irony of the emptiness of our words. It's not just like that our words do something of our own like sphere. It's like those who are with us. And that was just on, on Tuesday. Then Wednesday comes around and we're doing this like intense planning day as a staff team and we're kind of mapping out a transition and uh, then we go to lunch afterwards and I'm going to pick up something to bring home to Jess, a little treat if you will. And uh, she like places an order via me uh, or something else and so I take the or something else option because duh and I make a custom thing that was really what I would want more than what she would want and I bring it back and I can, there's like a, a like a, you ever notice when someone's disappointed? This is like, a, like um, have you ever given someone a gift and they go, oh. So that happened. And I was like, oh. And she goes, this isn't even on the menu. Looking at the different constituent parts of this acai bowl that I brought back, this, this is not even there. I'm quiet. I'm saying no thing at all. And then <laughs> Jess uh, goes, you know what? And she pulls out like the bane of my existence, a review. She's about to write them a review on Google and I'm like, don't write the review. And I think at that point she thinks I'm just annoyed that she's gonna write a review. She's like, no, like it's not on the menu. This is helpful, blah, blah, blah. Um, regardless of what you think of reviews, I'm still silent the whole time, but inside I feel, I guess what is like, I don't know, anxiety and shame and maybe we just call it conviction of the Holy Spirit. Like just say, I did a custom order, but instead I just let the review be written. And I'm sitting in that moment going, what do I do? And I'm like, I'm, I'm not even there in the room any longer. I go to the restroom and it's, I, uh, this is not, hey, Pat Kyle in the back, like feel physically nauseous from this moment. And I come back out and I say, I just lied to your face. The day was going great, by the way, up until the custom order. And beyond that point, it was like, I was like, what? what was that? Was that fear of getting caught up in whatever the disappointment was? Or was that personality? Was that family of origin? Was, was that me trying to define good and bad on my own terms, the evil one? I don't know what the heck that was, but the reality is, is I'm not here saying, by the way, follow me as I follow Jesus. I think I'm just here going, I don't know what to do with oaths in 2022, but if we fail to embody honesty, it actually brings relational tension and blow-ups that you're just like, I don't know what to do with that. And in the midst of that, not but, but and, there is an immense measure of grace. And there's relational consequences. Um, and so what do we have as followers of Jesus? We have confession, we have repentance, and we have a life in keeping with repentance. But the challenge with a life in keeping with repentance is it's not like, hey, I confessed to you, Jessica. I repented of my sin. Now look, it's been two days and I've not lied to you. Now let everything be, like, come back to normal. No, it's like, I guess all those times we talked about going to like, counseling would probably we would do well to do that. And like, oh, let me make an appointment. And, and just saying, like, the, this, is a, this is a deep fissure of relational trust that was just broken. And I'm, I'm the one who's in that. And God is holding me in the midst of that. See, the life in keeping with repentance is, I think, what Jesus is after. He's not saying on the Sermon on the Mount, okay, now be this. It's almost like, trust me and let us become this type of people. This is the difference, is that it is over time. By the way, that's the gospel. And it's meant for you and for me, not just one time back when you prayed a prayer in the fifth grade, but every day. Mm -hmm.